Chapter Four of A Mating in the Wilds by Otwell Binns. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Piece of Wreckage. The canoe drew near the first of the islands, and the Indian directed it inshore, and in a quiet bay, as the canoe floated quietly out of the current, they lifted up their voices and shouted again and again. Except for the swirl of the waters, everything was perfectly still, and anyone on the island must have heard the shouting, but there came no response. No good, said the Indian, and turned the bow of the canoe to the river once more. Island after island they inspected and hailed, meanwhile keeping a sharp lookout on either side of the river, but in vain. They were hoarse with shouting when the last of the islands was reached, and on Ainley's face a look of anxiety manifested itself. Landing at the tail of the island, the Indian hunted around until he found a dry branch, and this he threw into the water and stood to watch its course as it went down the river. The drift of it seemed to be towards a bar on the eastern bank, and towards that, distant perhaps a couple of miles, the course of their canoe was directed. When they reached it, again the Indian landed, and began to inspect the flotsam on the edge of the bank closely. Ainley watched him with apprehension. Presently the Indian stooped, and after two or three attempts, fished something from the water. He looked at it keenly for a moment. Then he gave a shout and began to walk along the bar towards the canoe. As he came nearer, the white man saw that the object he carried was the spoon end of a paddle. When close at hand, the Indian held it out for his inspection. Him broke, he said in English, and the break quite fresh. There was no question as to that. Notwithstanding that the paddle had been in the water, the clean wood of the fracture showed quite plainly, and whilst Ainley was looking at it, the Indian stretched a finger and pointed to a semicircular groove which ran across the broken end. Him shot, he announced quite calmly. Are you sure? asked Ainley, betraying no particular surprise. The Indian nodded his head gravely and fitted his little finger in the groove. Bullet mark. Ainley did not dispute the contention, nor apparently was he greatly troubled by the Indian's contention. He looked round a little anxiously. But where is the canoe, he asked, and Miss Yardley? The Indian waved a hand down river. Canoe miss this bar, and go in the current like hell to the meeting of the waters. Better we keep straight on and watch out. As they started down the river again, Ainley's face took on a settled look of anxiety. It was now close to midnight, but very light, and on either bank everything could be clearly seen. They kept a sharp lookout, but found no further trace of the missing canoe, and the early dawn found them in a quickening current, racing for the point where the tributary river joined the main stream. Presently it came in sight, and between walls of spruce and a foaming crest of water, they swept into the broader river, which rolled its turbid way towards its outfall in one of the great northern lakes. The canoe pranced like a frightened horse, 
at the meeting of the waters, and when they were safely through it, Ainley looked back and questioned his companion. Would Miss Yardley's canoe come through that? Like a dry stick, answered the Indian, letting the canoe drift for a moment in order to swing into the main current of the broader stream. Ainley looked ahead. Downstream, the river narrowed, and the low broad banks about them gradually rose until they were like high ramparts on either hand. The Indian pointed towards the tree-crowned cliffs. No good there, he said. We land here, we make grub, walk down, and see what water like. It seemed to Ainley the only sensible thing to do, and he did not demur. Accordingly, the Indian, seeing a favorable beach, turned the canoe inshore, and whilst his companion was preparing breakfast, the white man walked downstream towards the ramparts of rocks through which the river ran. When he reached them, he looked down at the water. It ran smooth and glassy and swift, whirling against the rocky sides a good foot higher than between the earthen banks upstream. He followed the gorge, forgetting that he was tired, forgetting the preparing breakfast, a look of extreme anxiety upon his face. Three-quarters of an hour's walking brought him to the end of the gorge, and for a mile or two the country opened out once more. The river running wide between low-lying banks to disappear in the lee of a range of hills above which hung a veil of mist. He stood regarding the scene for a few minutes, and then, the anxiety on his face more pronounced than ever, made his way back to the place where the Indian awaited him. The Indian had already eaten, and whilst he himself breakfasted, he told him what he had seen. The native listened carefully, and in the end, replied in his own language. Good, we go through the cliffs, in place of making the portage. It is swifter that way, and if the white Kutchman come this way, she had gone through these gates of the waters. We follow, but not very far, for again we come to the hills, and to a place where the earth is rent, and the waters fall down a wall that is higher than the highest spruce. If the Kutchman's canoe go there, it is the end. Falls. So that was the meaning of the mist among the hills. The river plunged into a chasm, and if Helen Yardley's canoe had been swept on in the current, it was indeed the end. Ainley's anxiety mounted to positive fear. He pushed from him the fried deer meat and bacon, which the other had prepared for him, and rose suddenly to his feet. Let us be going, he said sharply, and walked restlessly to and fro whilst his companion broke camp. A few minutes later, they were afloat again, and after a little time there was no need to paddle. The current caught them and flung them towards the limestone gateway at express speed. In an amazingly short time they had passed through the gorge, and were watching the banks open out on either side of them. There was no sign of life anywhere, no indication that anyone had passed that way since time began. As they sped onward, a peculiar throb and rumble began to make itself heard. It increased as they neared the range of hills towards which they were making, 
and as the banks began to grow rocky and the water ahead broken by boulders the indian looked for a good place to land he found it on the lee side of a bluff where an eddy had scooped a little bay in the steep bank and turning the canoe inside it they stepped ashore making the canoe secure they climbed to the top of the bank and began to push their way downstream the rapids as ainley noted grew worse everywhere the rocks stood up like teeth tearing the water to tatters and the rumble ahead grew more pronounced standing still for a moment they felt the earth tremble beneath their feet and the white man's face paled with apprehension a tangle of spruce hid the view of the river as it skirted a big rock and as the river evidently made a swerve at this point they struck a bee-line through the timber the rumble of which they had long been conscious of the suddenness seemed to become a roar and as they came to an open place where they could see the water again they understood the reason the river but a few feet below them bordered by shelving terraces of rock suddenly disappeared rolling glassily for perhaps fifty yards with scarce a ripple on its surface the water seemed to gather itself together and leap into a gorge the bottom of which was ninety feet below ainley stood looking at the long cascade for a full minute a wild light in his eyes then he looked long and steadily at the gorge through which the river ran after its great leap his face was white and grim and his mouth was quivering painfully then without a word he turned and began to hurry along the line of the gorge the indian strode after him where go to he asked the end of the gorge was the brief reply the indian nodded and then looked back if canoe can go over there it smashed the small bits oh i know it don't i cried ainley savagely hold your tongue can't you an hour's wild walking brought them to the end of the gorge and looking down the rather steep face of the hill to the widening river the white man carefully surveyed the banks after a time he found what he was looking for a pile of debris heaped against a bluff whose hard rock resisted the action of the water it was about a quarter of a mile away and on the same bank of the river as himself still in silence he began to drop down the face of the hill and sometimes climbing over moss-grown rocks sometimes wading waist-high in the river itself he made his way to the heap of debris it was the drift pile made by the river which at this point cast out from its bosom logs and trees and all manner of debris brought over the falls and down the gorge a great heap piled in inextricable confusion as high as a tall fir tree and as broad as a church feverishly gerald ainley began to wade round its wide base and the indian also joined in the search poking among the drift logs and occasionally tumbling one aside then the indian gave a sharp grunt and out of the pile dragged a piece of wreckage that was obviously part of the side and bow of a canoe he shouted to ainley who hurried scramblingly over a heap of the obstructing logs and who after one look 
at that which the Indian had retrieved, stood there shaking like wind-stricken corn, his face white and ghastly, his eyes full of agony. The Indian put a brown finger on a symbol painted on the bows with the letters HBC beneath. Both of them recognized a piece of wreckage as belonging to the canoe in which Helen Yardley had left the camp, and the Indian, with a glance at the gorge which had vomited the wreckage, gave emphatic utterance to his belief. All gone. Gerald Ainley made no reply. He had no doubt that what the Indian said was true, and the truth was terrible enough. Turning away, he began anew to search the drift pile, looking now for the body of a dead girl, though with but little hope of finding it. For an hour he searched in vain, then began to scramble down river, searching the bank. A mile below the first drift pile, he came upon a second, caught by a sandbar, and that, thrusting itself out in the water, snared the smaller debris. This also he searched diligently, with no result, and after wandering a little further down the river, without finding anything, returned to where the Indian awaited him. We will go back, he said, and these were the only words he spoke until they reached their canoe again. The Indian cooked a meal, of which Ainley partook with but little care for what he was eating, his eyes fixed on the ochre-colored water as it swept by, his face the index of unfathomable thoughts. After the meal, they began to track their canoe upstream, until they reached water where it would be possible to paddle, one of them towing with a line, and the other working hard with the paddle to keep the canoe's nose from the bank. A little way before they reached the limestone ramparts, through which they had swept at such speed a few hours before, the Indian, who was at the tow-line, stopped and indicated that they must make a portage over the gorge, since the configuration of the cliffs made it impossible to tow the canoe through. In this task, a very hard one, necessitating two journeys, one with the canoe and one with the stores, they were occupied the remainder of the day, and when they pitched camp again and had eaten the evening meal, the Indian promptly fell asleep. But there was no sleep for Gerald Ainley. He sat there staring at the water rushing by, reflecting the crimson flare of the northern night. And it was not crimson that he saw it, but ochre-colored, as he had seen it earlier in the day, hurrying towards the rapids below, and to that ninety-foot leap into the gorge. And all the time, in vision, he saw a canoe swept on the brown flood, a canoe in which crouched a chestnut-haired girl, her gray eyes wide with fear, her hands helplessly clasped as she stared ahead, whilst the canoe danced and leaped in the quickening waters, hurrying towards the ramparts below, which for aught she knew might well be the gates of death. Sometimes the vision changed, and he saw the canoe in the rapids below the ramparts, and waited in agony for it to strike one of the ugly teeth of rock. Again and again it seemed that it must, but always the current swept it clear, and it moved on at an increasing pace, swept in that quick mill race 
immediately above the falls. On the very edge he saw it pause for a brief fraction of time, and then the water flung it and the white-faced girl into the depths beneath, and he saw them falling, falling through the clouds of spray, the girl's dying cry ringing through the thunder of the waters. He cried out in sudden agony, My God, no! Then at the sound of his own cry, the vision left him for a time, and he saw the river as it was, rosy in the light of the midnight sun. A sound behind him caused him to turn round. The Indian, awakened by his cry of anguish, had sat up and was staring at him in an odd way. It is all right, Joe, he said, and with a grunt, the Indian lay down to sleep again. Ainley could not remain where he was to become again the prey of terrible imaginations. Rising to his feet, he stumbled out of the camp and began to walk restlessly along the bank of the river. He was body-tired, but his mind was active with an activity that was almost feverish. Try as he would, he could not shut out the visions which haunted him, and as fast as he dismissed one, a new one was conjured up. Now, as already shown, it was the canoe with the girl dancing to destruction. Now, that final leap, then again, it was that broken piece of flotsam by the drift pile at the end of the gorge, and later, in some still reach far down the river, a dead girl, white-faced but peaceful, like drowned Ophelia. He walked far without knowing it, driven by the secret agonies within, and all the time conscious that he could not escape from them. Then that befell which put a term to these agonizing imaginings. As he walked, he came suddenly on the ashes of a campfire. For a moment he stared at it uncomprehendingly. Then his interest quickened, as the state of the ashes showed someone had camped at this place quite recently. He began to look about him carefully, walking down the shelving bank to the edge of the river. At that point there was a stratum of soft clay which took and preserved the impressions of everything of weight which rested upon it, and instantly he perceived a number of footmarks about a spot where a canoe had been beached twice. Stooping, he examined the footmarks minutely. There was quite a jumble of them, mostly made by a long and broad moccasined foot, which was certainly that of a man. But in the jumble he found the print of smaller feet, which must have been made by a youth or a girl. A quick hope kindled in his heart as he began to trace these prints among the others. He had little of the craft of the wilds, but one thing quickly arrested his attention. The smaller footprints all pointed one way, and that was down the bank towards the water. Now, why should that be? Had the person who had made those footprints not been in the canoe when the owner had landed to pitch camp? And if such were the case, and the maker of them was indeed a woman, what was she doing here, alone in the wilderness? Had Helen Yardley been saved by some fortunate chance, and wandering along the river bank, stumbled on the camp of some prospector or trapper, making his way to the wild north. His mind clutched at this new hope eagerly. Hurriedly, he climbed the sticky bank and began feverishly to search for signs 
that could help him. Then suddenly the hope became a certainty, for in the rough grass he saw something gleam, and stooping to recover it, found that it was a small emerald swastiki brooch, similar to one which he had seen three days before at Miss Yardley's throat. As he saw this, he gave a shout of joy, and a moment later was hurrying back along the bank to his own encampment. As he went almost at a run, his mind was busy with the discovery he had made. There were other brooches in the world like this, thousands of them, no doubt, but there were few, if any, at all, in this wild Northland, and not for a single moment did he question that this was the one that Miss Yardley had worn. And if he were right, then the girl was safe, and no doubt was already on her way back to her uncle's camp in the care of whatever man had found her. Excitedly, he broke on the slumbers of his Indian companion, and after showing him the brooch, bade him accompany him to the place where he had found it, and there pointed to the footmarks on the river bank. Can you read the meaning of those signs? The Indian studied them as a white man would a cryptogram, and presently he stood up and spoke with the slow gravity of his race. The Klutchman, she came from the river. The man he carried her from the water in his arms. How do you know that, Joe? The Indian pointed to certain footprints which were much more deeply marked than the others. The man he carry heavy weight when he make these, and the Klutchman she weigh how much? One hundred and ten pounds, sure. He not carry that weight back to the canoe, because the Klutchman she walk. He pointed again, this time, to the smaller footprints and to Ainley. Reading the sign through the Indian's eye, the explanation amounted to a demonstration. Yes, yes, I understand, he cried. But in that case, where is she? The Indian looked up and down the river, then waved a hand upstream. The man, he take her back to camp. Then why did we not meet them as we came down? A puzzled expression came on the Indian's face. For a moment, he stood considering the problem. Then he shook his head gravely. I not know. We must get back to the camp at once, Joe. We must find out if Miss Yardley has returned. We know now that she is alive, and at all costs we must find her. We will start at once, for there is no time to lose. He turned on his heel and led the way back to the canoe, and half an hour later they were paddling upstream towards the junction of the rivers, the Indian grave and imperturbable, Ainley with a puzzled, anxious look upon his handsome face. End of chapter 4